Um, I'm going to be speaking about same-sex attraction and other orientedness related to that and the church and Christians and how to respond to that. So um, it is going to be PG-13. I'm going to try to be discreet, but I'm also going to be frank. So if you've got younger kids in the service, you may want to, you still can take them to children's ministry if you'd like. Um, Otherwise, you may be having a discussion with them during the Packers game. Um, Also, if you're new to the church, um, this is only the second time I'll have talked about this in the four years I've been here. Once because I was preaching through 1 Corinthians, and in 1 Corinthians 6 it comes up. And so um, courage required me to deal with it. Um, I preached a whole sermon on um, sexual ethics for heterosexuals and came after them really hard the week before that. And then this time we asked the church, the people in church, what they want, needed to hear about, what they needed to understand, what scripture teaches and what Christian theology teaches. And this is one of the four um, subjects that, that people popularly selected. Um, and so that's why I'm speaking on it. I know that some of you here this morning feel fairly strongly that I probably should ditch this and actually talk about um, issues of race and Ferguson and that decision and how that is existing in our country and what's that, what that's doing to our communities and the relationship between um, black, predominantly black and predominantly white communities and so on. And I want to say very briefly about that. I am going to do the fourth sermon in this series that was supposed to be today on the church in society on January 18th, and I will talk about that then. Now you might say, well, it'll cool down by then. That's why. Because when your spouse is yelling at you about something, that is not the time to have the discussion about it. It's only the time to write down the fact that you need to talk about it. Okay? Now the reason why I'm giving you a date is because for our African-American neighbors, there is no credibility when we say, we'll talk about this later. When these things happen, and it brings up the opportunity to bring this to the forefront, we always say, you're right, we should have a conversation about this. Let's all settle down, and then we will, and then we don't. And so that's why I'm giving you a date. On January 18th, I will talk about this, when I talk about the church and society, okay? But I do think it will be helpful for us to simmer down emotionally so that we can try to really grapple with it in terms of how we should believe and act Christianly. Okay, um, the questions that came up related to this in the church as people ask questions about um, orientations and Christian faith in the church included basically these. How do we understand and relate to people of different orientations? How do we address same-sex marriage? And how do we respond to the court's actions on these things? How are, gay, are gays welcome at High Point? And what is done to embrace and reach out to them? How do we talk to someone who says that they are Christian and um, lesbian, gay, bisexual, or transgendered? How do we put together gender roles, transgender and homosexual? How do we, and how does God feel about that? Um, and there were a number of other questions, and then there were a lot of people that voted for this. I think it was the, it got the second most votes for people wanting to hear about this. I think it's important. I want to point you to some of the stuff I've already said because I'm not going to be recovering it this morning. Um, two years ago, I preached a sermon on this where I focused specifically on the biblical passages that refer to homosexual behavior and um, the science as it stood at that time related to what we know about same-sex attraction and other orientations, okay? And I spent 45 minutes on that, and honestly, we haven't found out anything new in two years. 
scientifically, and the Bible hasn't changed. And so um, we, we put up a blog. It's already up on the Engage and Equip blog um, that has a list of those things, and you can click on them and listen to those sermons. And we did add the one on sexual ethics for everybody onto the blog to make sure that that punched you in the face, too, if you're heterosexual. I do think the best paper on the science, and it is, there's a link to it on the blog, is this one called Stanton Jones, by Stanton Jones called Sexual Orientation and Reason. It's um, a PDF document. It's, it's a really good summary of what we know about sexual orientation from the scientific or counseling perspective. Um, what we will do is this. Um, next Sunday, after the second service, we'll have a lunch in probably Micah E., um, where I will make myself available for a couple of hours or as long as people want to talk or yell about this. Um, and it'll give you a week to think about it, go to the blog, read whatever you want to read, prepare yourself, and then come and have a meaningful discussion. And um, so bring food and opinions and questions and whatnot. Um, so in order for, for partly because I don't have two hours to talk about this, I want to give you the summary very directly of what I said in that sermon two years ago. And that is this, that what the Bible seems to say about homosexual behavior is what it does say. Um, which is, and I like Graham Cole's summary the best, that, that homosexual sex is sinful and that homosexual or same-sex, homosexual desires or same-sex attraction are disordered desires. Now, the minute you say that as a Christian, you have to immediately follow up and say the, this about the larger issue, and that is this, that all human beings are created in God's image and in their sexuality and gender, and, and sexuality and gender are part of that original and sinless creation. Yet all human beings are fallen and in a disordered condition. All humans struggle with a God-given and yet disordered drives and orientations, including our sexuality, and sexual purity is one of the great battles of every human life. Um, one of the things I said in 2012 was this. Um, what heterosexual Christians are experiencing in monogamous marriage is not sexual wholeness. Um, all of our disorder, all of our desires, drives, and orientations in sin have fallen into some kind of a disordered state. You just ask people who've been married for a while if what they're experiencing sexually in their marriage is everything they thought sex would be or everything it's advertised to be, right? And the answer by anybody who's at all honest is going to be, of course, no. Of course not, Right? And that's because everyone, biblically speaking, has a God-given gift of sexuality and gender, and yet is also experiencing a disordering of that orientation and gift in the sinful condition. One of the ways um, Linda Seeler, who is um, a woman who has had, who's, who has experienced trans transgendered feelings and same-sex attractions and now claims to not have those anymore and is a staff worker for Chi Alpha at Purdue University, says it this way. She says, think about um, dropping a wine glass on the floor. You've probably had this happen. I mean, I've broken them on the counter. Um, you can drop 35 wine glasses on tiles and all 35 of them will break, right? And probably not one of the 35 will break the exact same way. Human beings are enormously complex mixtures of orientations and drives and desires and reasonable capabilities and bodily functions and so on. And they're all mixed together. And when you break one, you almost never break one the same way. 
and only with a biblically profound sense of human brokenness can a Christian in a non-self-righteous way refer to same-sex attraction as a kind of human brokenness. Does that make sense? Um, one of the things that I've found in talking with people who are very adamantly pro-gay in the sense that um, homosexual sex and attractions should be dramatically affirmed for the good of the people who possess them or experience them is that um, you usually what goes along with that is a belief that you cannot make valid moral decisions unless you have personal experience with something because empathy is the most important moral intuition. Okay? It's generally true of people of more progressive or liberal ideologies, but generally speaking, there's this idea that unless you've experienced it, you can't morally talk about it. Now, in terms of moral philosophy, that is false. Okay? That's not true. Oftentimes, experience makes us reason rash less rationally and less truthfully about moral questions. However, not experiencing something also makes us more flippant and oftentimes more likely to make moral mistakes because we don't take the time to think about things carefully enough. And so one of the things I need some of you to know or some of you need to know in order to be able to listen to me even talk about this is that I have been wading through this very specifically um, for since I was like 19, okay? Even maybe a little bit before that. Um, my first day on campus as a freshman, the orientation expressed that every freshman had to go to, it was absolutely mandatory, had two main points, have as much sex as you want to, but you probably should wear condoms, and they're free at the medical center or your RA or whatever. And two, if you don't absolutely affirm homosexual behavior in every possible form, you are absolutely bigoted and have no place in the university. Okay? My mom paid for that. She's still kind of aghast about it. Um, um, my TA in my, the first class I was a TA and my TA supervisor was a not openly gay man that um, very, um, we had a close relationship and he had a very, we had a very interesting dynamic after a while. I served at a Christian camp in which um, you were assigned a prayer partner of the same gender when you were there. And the two years that I was in the resident staff, both of the men that I was paired with were men that the first thing well, not both of them the first thing. One of them, the first thing he confessed was, would you please pray for me about the fact that I'm attracted mostly to men? And it seems very strong. The other one actually interacted with me in a way that was unexpected and uninvited that was very profound for me. And it, it wasn't so much that I was grossed out by it, but it actually, it, at first that was my response. But after that, my response was, this is a guy who knew the social risk at a conservative Christian camp to erotically come on to another guy that he knew darn well, had not said anything, but his, our closeness of friendship was so connected with his feelings of same-sex attraction that he didn't have the ability to restrain himself from doing it. And I saw the embarrassment that he felt, and it was very crushing for him and very off-putting for me, and um, so on. And then all through college, like I said, I had very close relationships with gay and lesbian people. I, of course, was leader of the Christian group, which, of course, the gay group, we were supposed to be mortal enemies, and there was this kind of sense of mortal enemies as well as, like, profound respect because we were the two groups that actually stood for something as a minority and were hated by most on the campus. So there was this kind of, like, collegiality between the groups, and it... 
from 1995 to the present, I've probably read a couple, two or 3,000 pages on this. My closest friend in seminary came out as a gay man. Um, we were really close for my first semester. Then he went to Oxford to study Foucault. I still didn't put it together. And then he came out the next semester to this other friend. The three of us were best friends. And I've been friends with him for all the time since then. I saw him just this, a few months ago in Colorado when I was there. Celibate, evangelical gay man. We've written hundreds of pages of emails back and forth talking about how we reflect on these things and what celibacy means and what friendship means and what intimacy means and what these things mean. So you cannot believe what I say. But if you think that I think these things because I have not been close with gay and lesbian people and transgendered people and that I don't care about them and so I think these things because I'm a bigoted fundamentalist Christian, you may be the bigoted person. Okay, that's all I'm saying. Sorry that took a while, but there's some people I think that maybe needed to hear that. One of the things that we, you have to re- we have to recognize when we try to relate to same-sex attracted folks and people of other orientations is that um, this is part of a much bigger thing that is a cataclysmic cultural revolution that has happened in our country um, that we now refer to sometimes as the culture wars, but it has not been going on since disestablishment in the 1960s. It has been going on dramatically in earnest since at least the 1880s and the start of the progressivist movement. And some things related, I mean, it, it goes back to Emerson and before that. It started with how we looked at the poor, but then it changed with how we looked at all of humanity. And then it changed with how we treated all people and what people really needed from culture and society. And I can't get into all that. I'll talk a little bit more about that maybe next Sunday at the luncheon. But there's two things that it has absolutely produced and probably not intentionally from the beginning, but absolutely embraces now. And one is a dramatic over-sexualization of human beings. Human sexuality is a drive. And as a drive, it can be deadened or elevated. And we have a culture that dramatically intensifies and elevates sexuality so that sexuality gets way out of proportion in our experience. C.S. Lewis writes this paragraph about it. He says, you can get a large audience together for a striptease act, that is, to watch a girl undress on the stage. Now, suppose you came to a country where you could fill a theater by simply bringing a covered plate onto the stage and then slowly lifting the cover so as to let everyone see, just before the lights went out, that it contained a mutton chop or a bit of bacon, would you not think that in that country something had gone wrong with the appetite for food? Right? And some of you realize this. For some of us, um, we find food in our hands and find ourselves eating it and not even hardly knowing how we got there. Okay? If you don't understand sexuality similarly, and if you don't understand we're in a cultural place where we've inflamed it dramatically, then, it, then we go, here's what, here's what the result is. The Christian sexual ethic becomes absolutely unthinkable. Right? Because the Christian sexual ethic is either unmitigated monogamy in a single marital relationship as long as they both are alive, or absolute celibacy and abstinence. That's it. Right? Now, if you're therefore not married, or if you're married and your spouse can or will not perform, most Americans intuitively believe, therefore, that the Christian sexual ethic is completely unreasonable. The idea that you could live for years and not have sex with anyone sounds insane. 
it sounds like the worst form of abuse to deny somebody one of the most intense bodily functions since mainly what we are are people seeking the expression of ourselves. And because sex it is a heightened physical experience and an experience of closeness and companionship, to erase someone's capacity to that sounds like erasing their humanity. And because we're implicit atheists and don't really believe in a glory that lasts forever that will dwarf any pleasure or experience that could be had in temporal sexuality, the level of desperateness that we feel to make sure we suck all the marrow out of life is so powerful. And because sexuality seems like one of the main ways we do that, the idea of the biblical ethic on sexuality seems absolutely unthinkable and therefore completely undoable. And then therefore to look someone in the eye who, who doesn't desire to marry someone of the opposite gender to fulfill their sexual desires and to say, then your other option is lifelong unmitigated celibacy. Sounds like the most terrible lack of empathy ever unleashed upon the earth. And what I would argue is that it's actually not because it is, but because in the cultural revolution in which we live and the over-sexualization that we've produced, it feels that way because of what we've done to ourselves. The other is that we live in a culture of absolute self-definition. Our meaning does not come from the outside that we discover. Our meaning comes from the inside, and we define our own lives. A generally, generally Supreme Court justices are supposed to be well thought of, but this, Anthony Kennedy like literally wrote this on paper, okay? That at the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and the mystery of human life. This isn't a decision about abortion. And why the right to take somebody else's life if that life is inside you is fundamental to liberty. Because you decide what that is. And if fundamental to liberty is that you get to decide what it is, and if you decide it's just tissue, then it's just tissue. And if you decide it's a human being, then it's a human being. But you decide. Now, it would be one thing if he had written, which I also don't agree with, because governmentally there can be no higher authority than the individual human being because of our view of liberty, we have no better option than to dot, dot, dot. That would have been wrong, but coherent. This is not good philosophy. It is part of our cultural ethos that we believe we can define ourselves from ourselves. And if you believe that, then nobody can tell you what to do with anything. If you make your own meaning rather than discover it, then by definition, there can be no external ethic that's imposed on you. Now, what this has produced in, in the pro-gay movement, and, and I, I'm not saying this, I'm saying this out of a pastoral concern for our interaction with same-sex attracted people. What this has produced is same-sex attracted folks have ridden the wave of this disestablishment 
but they've also been the figurehead to take the brunt of the pushback. So over the last 50 years, mainly in the last 20, the gay movement has enjoyed enormous success, but also been the front line in battled wave so that they've taken the most casualties. The most vicious counterattacks of people trying to push back on this wave of disestablishment have seen gay and lesbian people and their advocacy as one, of the, as one of the most out of bounds sort of things and as the figurehead for this transition. And so they've aimed their guns at them disproportionately. And so, so you have conservative Christians not talking about massively promiscuous heterosexuals or how we dress our daughters like whores during Halloween or how we do all kinds of extremely unchristian things. How we ridiculous, choose ridiculous parenting models that have nothing to do with what Scripture teaches and so on. What we've done is, they've, they, they, and mainly preachers, who are theologically conservative and would consider themselves biblical, have aimed their guns at these folks, which means gay and lesbian people in the gay movement have enjoyed enormous success, but have felt enormously embattled and taking, taken many casualties. And listen, that's why you're afraid of them. Because when you are fighting a battle line and another army charges, and you kill 70% of them, and then they take you over and you surrender. You think they're going to machine gun you. And so it's terrifying. And there's good reason for that, because now there are seven or eight or nine or twelve Christian organizations mainly that in some way are involved in weddings that have now lost their property, have been brought up on human rights violations, have been told to intellectually and morally re-educate their employees. Something that sounds like it's straight out of 1984. The dystopian novel of Big Brother telling you how to think. And this is one of the reasons why a lot of Christians who are biblical Historically Orthodox Christians are very concerned. And here's, here's the problem. We don't get to act scared. We act on the basis of our spiritual and moral convictions in a relationship to what we believe is right. We do not get to lash out and play games and hurt people because we're afraid of them. And, and I do not believe that the main fear is homophobia. I think that's ridiculous. The fear is the fear that those who are oppressed, when liberated and given power, usually become the worst oppressors. That's the fear. And that's why there's so much political acrimony both ways. Because same-sex attracted people fear that if the wave fails— they are toast. And therefore, it must succeed. And a lot of conservative people and a lot of Christians believe that if the wave succeeds, we are toast. And that produces enormously immoral and virtuous behavior in our part. Especially when we perceive our counterparts across, across the way as engaging in immoral behavior. The Christian sexual ethic is completely reversed to that cultural trend. 
It is, it is completely static throughout time and throughout the Bible. It is very definite. I want to say three quick things about this. One is that it does clearly say in this passage, without hesitation and without undue recrimination, that homosexual sex is undifferentiable from other sins. Not only is, is homosexual sex put in here as a sin, it is put in here with other sexual sins and other non-sexual sins. And it comes after a claim that people who sue other people, namely within the church, and drag Jesus' name through the mud through suing other Christians, those people aren't going to inherit the kingdom of God. And similarly, <laughs> thieves, people who are idolatrous, people who are greedy, and people who are sexually immoral will also not inherit the kingdom of God. The phrase, the wicked, is a fairly technical biblical phrase that refers to people who live unrepentantly within a particular dynamic. It is not referring to people who have an episode of greed, where they should be generous, they're not, they were greedy, you're going to hell. That's not what that means. And one of the ways to see how that phrase is used is to read Psalm 1. Psalm 1 talks about the righteous man and the wicked. And it refers to them as directed, focused, chosen, unrepentant lifestyles. And that's important to recognize. So homosexual sex is not differentiated as sin from other ones, but it is straightforwardly called sin with all the others. And it is also straightforwardly said that to embrace that without repentance or change or desire for anything else leads to a eternity or to an end of not inheriting the kingdom of God. Now, the second thing that this, that, to take from these verses is this. If you look closely, internal orientation change is not promised. When it says, but you were washed, you were sanctified, and you were justified, it does not actually claim there that the internal experience changes. It doesn't. In fact, in a few verses, it's going to assume they don't change. What it says, when it says that there has been a change, it presumes the category of the wicked. That is, a directed, unrepentant, straightforward, I'm doing this, you can't tell me not to, I define who I am, I do what I want with my own body, I'm doing this. He's saying we were changed from that course. The course of, I'll be greedy if I want to. I'll be a thief if I want to. I'll sue who I want to. I'll have sex with who I want to. Two, taking all of those desires and all those things and sublimating them under the lordship of Jesus and living the way Jesus has created us, discovering our meaning from Christ's kingship rather than defining it for ourselves. He says, that's what changed. You were washed from this. You were counted just. You were placed. You were sanctified. You were set apart as holy under the kingship of Jesus. Right? And you, and you were put under the name of Jesus and you were empowered by the spirit of Jesus to live in that. It actually does not say you no longer want to be greedy ever again. And if we looked at any of the other things in the list other than just homosexual orientation, we would have already known that. Because if you're a Christian, when you became a Christian, did you stop having any unwarranted sexual desires. If you did, we really ought to switch places. 
because I did not experience that, right? Did you experience an immediate change to no longer be greedy or selfish or to lash out at other people and get justice when they hurt you, i.e. lawsuits? Did did you, because I did not experience that. What I experienced was a new king over those things. I experienced all those things remaining, but I experienced a new king that told me what to do with them and a new power to rule over their unruliness. That's what I, that's what I experienced. And that's actually what the verse says. That I was forgiven of my actions in line with those things. I was set apart for a new lifestyle under a new king, and I was given the Spirit of God so that I could live towards Jesus rather than towards those orientations and desires. That's what that verse says. That's what I experienced. I bet that's what you experienced. But for some reason, we tend to use this passage to tell gay people that their orientations are going to change because it says you were washed. Change is assumed. Therefore, it can happen. Now, I'm not saying it can't happen. I'm just saying this verse doesn't prove it happens. We're clear on that? This means yes, this means no. Okay, we got one not. Great. <laughs> the third thing I think we should say from this passage is this. This passage actually does tell us, and this is very dangerous to talk about this, and I realize that, okay? But this passage actually does tell us why these sins are wrong. And therefore, it actually tells us why acting on same-sex attractions with homosexual sexuality is wrong. It is also the reason all the other sins mentioned here and all the other sins in the whole Bible that there are are wrong. And that is, um, there's a few reasons there. One is, you'll know in the first verse that Paul recognizes theologically that you, your life has a purpose and therefore your body has a purpose and you are ethically required to do with your body what it's for which isn't defined by you, and what your body is for is not a reference to what you can do with your body, but why your body was made. So, for example, take, take a sedan, okay? You got this car, and it was created for a purpose. That is locomotion, right? It was, it was made to drive places, and it was made to drive places seating somewhere between one and usually about five people, right? Okay. Now, if you've ever been on a mission trip to South America, you know that these cars will hold about 11. <laughs> right? Like, I've been to India. A Honda Hero, like a 100cc motorcycle, will hold six. Okay? And some groceries. All right? Now, the sedan was not actually made to hold 11. That's why it has five seatbelts. Right? You can use it. You can put people in the trunk. There's all kinds. And you can hit people with it. There's all kinds of things you can do with that car that instrumentally that car will do. But it is not teleologically, in terms of its intention, why it was made. And you see, what this passage and many others assume is we are not, when it says we talk about doing what our body is for, that does not mean whatever we can do with it. It means that your body was created for a certain purpose and you are ethically obligated before God to use your body for what it's for. Part of your embodiedness is your sexuality and you are required morally by God to use your sexuality for what it's for. That's why it's a problem in our culture that nobody knows what it's for. 
How is a whole generation of young people, or anybody, going to use their sexuality for what it's for when nobody knows what it's for? Right? Another one, the second thing is, is that there's a very strong claim of our union with Christ. That is, that when you become a Christian, you come into spiritual union with, this, with the Spirit of God, which means whatever you do, you take Jesus with you, which is the logic, his logic here of whether or not you can go to a prostitute. Because you might think that's really awful, but the men in Corinth in the first century didn't. It was just part of life. Just part of life. Right? You have sex with your wife, she can get pregnant, then you have responsibilities. Right? It's much cheaper to go to a prostitute. And it was part of most men's life ever since they were a kid, and then they became a Christian. Right? I don't know if you've ever been to any of these ancient cities. The, 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 the brothel is like on Main Street. It's not exactly hidden in the back lot somewhere. Okay? And so these men just, it's just part of life. It's like going to the grocery store. And Paul's like, When you came to Christ, the Holy Spirit, the Bible promises, came to live inside of you. You are in union with God himself. So whatever you do, you take God with you. Okay? Which means, now listen, this, on one level, this has nothing to do with same-sex attraction, does it? This has to do with your attitude towards sin, doesn't it? Every time you do something you were not created to do, you, you're Christian. You are dragging God into that. Now, you think the atonement is amazing? When Jesus died for all your sins? Imagine the condescension and the humility of God to be united with a creature that after he justified him was going to drag him in his union with that person all over the place. That's another sermon for another time. The way this relates to our sexuality is you are a temple of the Holy Spirit. What sexual actions are legitimate for a temple of the Holy Spirit? Our union with Christ makes it more morally important that we do with our sexuality what it's for. And then um, there's the whole issue of sexuality and spiritual union of people who have sex with each other coming from the idea of two becoming one flesh in Genesis 2.24. I don't have time to get into all that. There's also the issue of sexuality being a certain kind of sex because it's between two people and it's embodied and so it's, it's, um, it's blowout. Like what it produces in terms of effects on people negatively when it's misused is more potent because of how it affects us embodiedly and with another person and so on, which actually heightens it. He's saying there's some sins that just don't have this kind of blowout when you do them. But there's something about sexual immorality that actually makes it not worse morally, but worse functionally. Right? And then lastly, when you were saved by grace, that salvation was pure gift. Okay? It was pure gift. That does not mean that that action does not produce moral obligations for you. It still does. Do you remember in Matthew's gospel where um, there's a guy who owes the master like a million bucks and he wipes out the debt, right? And then he, that guy who gets forgiven goes out and chokes some guy for owing $50. And then when the master finds out, he like throws the guy in the tower and his family and like, and you're kind of like, whoa, retroactive debt forgiveness. What's up with that? That's not okay. Right? Why was it okay? 
You see, the master believed that even though he forgave the debt, that forgiveness produced a moral obligation in the person who received the gift. I think a lot of Christians don't think about that. Paul can say that your salvation was received totally as a gift, and yet, because Christ died for you, you are totally obligated to him. And therefore, your body is totally obligated to him. You can't do what you want with your own body because God is a co-owner of it, and you have to use your body for what God has prepared for you to do, says Ephesians 2, right? We are God's workmanship in Christ Jesus to do the works God has prepared beforehand for us to do. And I could go on and on and on. But, th- but you see, if you read this passage in its context, it not only tells us the ethical standing of homosexual behavior, but it actually tells us why our sexual sins of all kinds are actually wrong. And it gives like seven reasons. So the question for this morning, 35 minutes into the sermon is, so how do we live this out? How do we live this out as Christian people and as the church together? Um, and I'm going to go through these a little bit fast. One of the metaphors you've heard me use if you go here for a while is that um, is partly what you, we have to get straight is the Christian demeanor. Not just the theology, but how we relate to other people. And I like this metaphor. You've got crabs and you've got slugs, right? Crabs are soft on the inside, hard on the outside. And so you never get at the softness because they're busy pinching you, okay? That's what a lot of really conservative Christians are like. A lot of fundamentalist Christians. They will just, they will pinch you. You can hit them. Their shell is ready. They are tough, and they are ready to go, right? Um, And then there's a slug. You can be like, well, I don't want to be a crab. So, okay, you can just be a slug. You can just, like, let everybody push you around and not believe anything and just accommodate everybody and whatever. I think that the physical body of human beings is actually a decently good metaphor for how we ought to relate to people. The human skeleton is on the inside, and the soft part is on the outside, so when we, so we can hold people and we can love people and we can touch people and we, we, there can be a, a process of intimacy in which the softness of our outer selves brings people in and loves them, but when they push us, after you get past the half inch of squishiness, there's bone and it doesn't move. And I think that's how convictional Christians ought to be. That when people, when people come to us, They should feel an initial softness. They should feel compassion. They should feel love. But they they should also feel that when people, when they try to emotionally manipulate us through our compassion to then believe truth claims that we convictionally believe are false, they push on that and they find bone. And they go, oh, I thought you were going to be a softie. I am a softie. And I can still punch you. Like, there's this, there's this dynamic, and I think the human body is a good metaphor for that. Now, So I I just want to go through some of the pastoral questions about this. For some of you, you may think that this is Stone Age, but listen, a lot of people didn't go to university since the 90s, so just relax, okay? Um, One of the questions people ask and still ask is, um, is same-sex attraction a choice? And I I I think that becomes a confusing question. I think the better question is, is same-sex attraction a conscious choice? I think that's much more clarifying because nobody stinking knows what decisions they made before the age of six or what happened to them or whatever that had determinative effects on their psychology. Nobody knows that. I mean, what's your earliest memory? (laughs) I mean, there's lots of parents who go, oh, I knew when he was four. 
And probably some did know when he was four, and, but most of us interpret our past and make up memories to suit ourselves and to make ourselves feel like, listen, I lost my wallet this last week, so I was in California, like this was like a week ago, and I couldn't find my wallet, and I remembered, like explicitly, I had a video in my head of taking it off of a table at the retreat center and putting it in my backpack and zipping it up so that I wouldn't lose my wallet. And I told my brother, as we drove the hour and a half back from the retreat center, I know what's there. I don't know why I couldn't find it. I don't know why I'm absent-minded. I don't know We get home. It is in my room at his house in Davis. Listen, listen, especially if you're over a certain age, you have hundreds of those memories in your head. (laughs) This is just a fact of human psychology. Your brain doesn't just create, um, propositional fake memories. It actually creates video fake memories. Video. And so there are things in your head that you absolutely believed happened that did not happen. Did not happen. And when I was doing research in undergrad in history, um, some of the people I did research would interview older people, like people in their 70s and 80s, and they would talk about it like it was yesterday. Oh, we used to roast hot dogs in that place, and then there was the quarry a few years later, blah, blah, blah. And they'd tell you the dates and like what dress they were wearing, and you would go look up the dates, and the quarry wasn't even dug until 10 years later. (laughs) It's just a fact. That's all. But that's just how the mind works. And so here's the thing. Nobody, nobody knows. You, you just, you don't remember. Your parents don't remember. Okay? The, the issue is not, is it nurture or did you, were you such a, no, nobody knows. Okay? There's, in my view, the scientific evidence points much more towards early childhood experiences. Because there's a Swedish study of 70 twin pairs and the concordance if one twin is gay, the other is gay is only 10%. And these are people with identical genetics, were born together and had the same parents. Okay? It's just twin concordance, 10% for identical twins. Okay? Now, but it doesn't matter, you see, because even if it was part of the development of somebody who has same-sex attractions, it wasn't a conscious choice. They didn't make those choices, and even if they made choices that they were conscious of that led to developing a same-sex attraction, they didn't know that was an implication of the choice when they made it. And so this idea that, like, if it was a choice, then they're morally—it's not helpful, generally speaking. There are some people who actively choose a homosexual orientation. Almost all of those people are women, and some of them in the feminist movement actually wrote about it, that they intentionally chose to become lesbians. I don't know why female sexuality is more fluid. I'm not going to get into that right now. just is. Um— The important thing here is to recognize that for all intents and purposes, people with same-sex attractions experience them as having nothing to do with a personal conscious choice. And to treat them like it is a conscious choice is very unhelpful and makes us sound very ignorant because it actually is pretty ignorant. Right? Okay, secondly, um, can same-sex attracted people change? The reason I, I bring this up is because lots of people ask it, and also because almost everything that's said in the public discourse is actually false. Um, the short answer to that question is, for some, yes, but for many, there is no experience of change. Okay? There are some people that change, and there are some people that change very readily. And then there are other people, and this is the majority, especially for men, 
they do not experience change in their same-sex attractions if their same-sex attractions are stable for more than three to five years. There are a lot of men and women who have unstable same-sex attractions for less than three years, many times in adolescence, and almost all of those people do not end up with stable same-sex attractions. This is one of the reasons why I would be against a same-sex attracted high school. Okay? However, um, and what, now, why is that? Because when this happens, there's some people, there are people in this church, in this room right now, who have had very strong same-sex attractions, and they've experienced change, and that's just their experience. They would never say it out loud in public, but that's their experience. Now, there's a couple reasons for this. Um, Stanton Jones, when he did his doctoral research, um, he did it at Arizona. It's just a brief story, so hang with me here for just a bit. And he studied under a woman who studied, did, did her work, main work in depression, but also was a sexuality expert. And what they find, found was depression was you could get the phenomenon of depression in lots of different people. And yet, the reason they were depressed was varied. So some people experienced depression after the death of a loved one. They had trouble coping. Some people experienced depression because they had a chemical imbalance in their body. Some people experienced depression because they, they weren't satisfied with their life. People experience the phenomenon or the condition of depression for lots of different reasons. And so you had depression as an outcome, but in terms of why people felt it was very varied. Then Stanton Jones was studying homosexuality with the same professor, and he realized that that's really— we'd spent 20 years, a couple hundred million dollars studying this thing, and we still didn't know why it happened. And here's—this is why I think that is— because I don't think there's such a thing as homosexuality. I think that there's a bunch of homosexualities that people experience same-sex attraction for a large variety of different reasons. There are some people that experience same-sex attractions because they were sexually abused. But that doesn't mean that everybody who experiences same-sex attractions was sexually abused. That's not true. One of the books I put on the blog by Wesley Hill, he's like, I grew up in this wonderful family with wonderful parents, and we were, I mean, they loved me. We went to church every week. I had a wonderful Sunday school. I did not get molested by a priest. I had a wonderful upbringing, and I have never had anything but same-sex attractions in my life. I have seen, I have seen some people, usually women, just decide they're going to date a man, and they just do. I have a decently good, I had a decently good lesbian friend, and she was in a partnership for a very long time, decades, and it broke up, and then she just decided to date a man, and that's it. And then I have other friends who have had very stable same-sex attractions their entire life. They've never had anything but that. Some of them at times thought about dating a person from the opposite sex and thought, maybe I could date that woman, but it doesn't mean I'm interested in women, right? I'm like, well, you only get one anyway in Christianity, so I do what you want, but, right? <clears throat> now, one of the reasons I think that this is important is, is that publicly, um, now, first of all, let me, let me defend from the pro-gay side for just a second. One of the reasons why same-sex attracted and gay movement folks are so adamant that any kind of therapy or any kind of process that helps people change their attractions not be investigated or developed or done anywhere is because many people will not experience change, and um, there is a higher provenience of suicide among same-sex attracted people. And some of the early psychological attempts at changing same-sex attractions were, were pretty barbaric. 
very strong electric shock therapy and so on, which led to a number of gay men killing themselves and so on. And so most of the people in the pro-gay movement are like, look, you just have to affirm this, okay? Quit trying to change it because people kill themselves, okay? Just accept it and affirm it and love these people and quit trying to change it. That's understandable, okay? What it has also done is made sure that anybody who wants to receive counseling or therapy of any kind to change their orientation can own, cannot access any kind of therapy in most cases. And if they do, its developmental level is about at the Stone Age level. Because um, people are so ruthlessly attacked in the counseling profession for even trying to develop any sort of means of this that we have not gotten beyond group therapy. And I just think that's unhelpful. I don't see why we can't do both. And I think that as a Christian, I would like to advocate for both because I think people who want to seek some kind of counseling for their same-sex attractions should be able to do so. And right now, the wave is massively against that. Okay, I'm gonna be really short on this one. A number of people come to me and say, okay, now that same-sex weddings are legal, I'm getting invited to them, sometimes by my own family members. Should I go? And um, here's the short answer to this. And this is where I am right now. I might change my mind on this. I doubt it. A wedding is both a public celebration and a witnessing of something that therefore you are affirming the content of what you're witnessing. You're saying that it's true and valid. Yet from a Christian perspective, a gay wedding is a union of two people, but it's not a wedding because it does not produce a marriage. And therefore, I don't know how you can publicly witness and celebrate something that as a Christian, I believe you should convictually believe is a falsehood. That's all. I just don't see how you can have integrity in that. And I, I don't think that the personal warmth of affirmation that we morally should give people lovingly can overcome the truth value of something that we believe is false. Because the way those folks, when they invite us, they're asking us to love them by affirming the truthfulness of something we believe is false. And so here's what I think you need to feel. I, I don't think you need to feel personally responsible for having to say no, but I think you should do it as lovingly as possible. Because they're asking you to betray your conviction if you hold a biblical conviction on marriage, I believe. And yet, they don't feel that way. And so when you say, I can't do that, that sounds like you saying, I think there's only three planets in the solar system. And you need to understand how they feel, and you need to try to be as loving and diplomatic as possible. And most of the gay people I've read on this, who are gay Christians, have said, do something else with them. Try to connect soon after or just before or something, and affirm, affirm the collegial union of when people pledge to care for each other, that's a moral good. When people pledge to love each other, that's a moral good. Those, there's a number of moral goods in gay unions. And so it's a very delicate thing there. Um, some people have asked, though, too, does it make a difference if it's in a church with a pastor or if it's not? And my response to that actually is absolutely. Absolutely. Now, 
I still don't know if I would affirm a civil union, but I have a much stronger conviction that biblically you cannot affirm a gay marriage in a church and or with a minister. Because then what you're saying is, I believe under Christian conviction that this is what the Bible teaches and is Christian truth. When you go to a civil union, the government is saying these people are are united to each other in contract and responsibility. That before the government, they are taking responsibility for each other. In a sense, that's a moral good. I'm much more open to going to that and actually much more open to affirming that. What I know I can't affirm is for that marriage to be performed in the name of Christ. Does that make sense? Whether you hate it or like it, okay. Another one is, Nick, shouldn't the church be more politically, like there's a lot of folks in this church who get a lot of like, hey, this is how we should be advocating conservatively or liberally, and shouldn't we do more, and shouldn't we advocate more, and shouldn't we, and I don't know how to talk about this without making it sound like everybody should be a conservative. Okay, but the fact is is that when liberal African-Americans or Hispanics are are allowed to vote on this issue They vote massively conservative and yet they vote Democrat in every election because there's a conflict in all of our political ideologies The parties have such conflicted groups and coalitions that nobody gets to really play on this one And it's very difficult to advocate for anything especially when courts overturn Ballot initiatives where you really can have a democratic process when courts overturn them and court appointments are hidden under representatives Which are hidden under representatives. It's extremely difficult to get it to make changes in the court system And so you've got this enormous problem It's an impossible to make the election of either candidate entirely about these kinds of issues And so there's an entire stalemate about change in this area, which is why there are many Christians who'd be like look I'd love to have like gay unions, but not gay marriages, but I care about the poor, and I like the Democrats' thing on that, and so I vote Democrat, and that's, and I can't, that's a whole bigger discussion, but I believe that if you're a Democrat, I believe that you should, and you're, you're that convictionally, I believe that you should work within that party to have a better view well, I would spend 95% of your energy on abortion and no-fault divorce. But with the 5% that's left over, you might want to talk about marriage, okay? Um, Which you'll do with no-fault divorce anyways. And if you're a Republican, I think there's a similar task. Quit dragging us along because you want a flat tax. We care about this, okay? That's all I'm going to say about this right now. Except for this, I'll talk about on the 18th, and I do believe that we need to advocate for freedom for all people. And so what freedom is going to look like in a pluralistic liberal society like ours is we are going to have to let gay people basically do what they want. Okay? And I'm actually for that because I don't like governmental coercion to do the right thing. Unless there's a very direct negative attack on somebody else. All of us do things all the time that have negative outcomes on other people. Listen, you can't, I don't think you can argue in as complex a society as we live in that everything that anybody does that has negative impact on other people can be stopped by the government. Or we wouldn't have trash pickup. Right? I mean, like, honestly. Um, but, you, but you can say you can't directly attack another person. But in doing so, we're not going to regulate sexuality. Right? Now, that doesn't mean the government can't support— um, Anyway, I'm not going to get into that right now. The, the point is, is that if you want freedom of conscience, and I believe that we really should advocate for freedom of conscience, I believe that you should be able to bake a cake for whoever you want to bake a cake for. Or do flowers for whoever you want to do flowers for. To the extent to which you cannot be forced to define something conscientiously against what you believe. 
like what marriage means. If we allow for the right of conscience, for the most important citizen responsibility, which is going to war, then we should allow it for everything else. If as a citizen of a nation, you can be called up to war to defend your country, and you can say, I do not believe in taking the life of another for any reason. I am a pacifist. Please give me an alternative action that I can do in support of my country. If that is okay, then the freedom of conscience must be universally okay. And we're going to have to work that out in a way that allows for maximal freedom for people to make choices of all orientations and beliefs and convictions. Okay, so I have no time left for the do's and don'ts. Will you give me five minutes? Okay. Okay. How do I interact with actually same-sex attracted people? I'm sorry, I've only got five minutes for this. I will flip the sermon next hour, and we'll put both on the internet, okay? So you can listen to the last 30 minutes of the next one. One, don't be wildly ignorant about same-sex attraction homosexual experience. Just don't do that. Um, I think if you just work through the blog, you'll be fine, okay? Two is don't treat LGBT people as though they are our bitter enemies in the culture war. If you are a culture warrior, they are your bitter enemies. You still can't treat them that way. You, you have to treat them like human beings created in the image of God of infinite value who will be immortal beings that are created for everything God has for every person who you wish to flourish in the creation that God gave and to flourish eternally with Christ. That's how you treat everybody, even your enemies, especially your enemies who've never actually shot at you. Okay? Three, don't treat other orientations as more disordered or homosexual sex as more sinful than your disordered orientations or more sinful than your sins. Okay? Don't back off on that it's sin. But then be really clear about you. And you see, you can never do that until you get a biblical doctrine of depravity. So you resist it. You resist a biblical doctrine of depravity. But to love gay people, you need it. And fourth, don't act like you know that much, like we know that much about same-sex attraction, either scientifically or biblically. Biblically, we know that homosexual sex is regarded as sin and part of disordered sexuality. Science tells us very little other than it's really hard for people to change. It's not a conscious choice for the most part. Right? And so don't pretend like we know everything there is to know. We don't. And if somebody who's pro-gay acts like they do, they're either ignorant or lying. Okay. Here's some things to do. One is offer non-condescending compassion. Okay, you may have been taught in college that 10% of people are gay. That's totally wrong, okay? The biggest real number is 3.5%, but that's wrong too because it includes everybody who's stably bisexual, okay? If you simply ask who has nothing but same-sex attractions, it's about 1.7% of the public, which is a lot lower, and everybody goes, oh, it's not that big a deal. Yeah, but here's the problem. That means same-sex attracted people are a true tiny minority, which means they need more protection, more love, and more inclusion in normalized life. You should have much more compassion for them because they're not nearly as big a group as they say they are. Two, offer a balanced and truthful theology, which is what both these two sermons are about. Three, see the similarities in your struggles against sin, yet don't minimize the differences. So for example, purity, sexual purity, is one of the biggest struggles in, in the Christian life, especially in our culture. I struggle every day with it. 
you know, I'm a married man, and how many of my sexual desires do I get to act on? About one hundredth of one percent, frankly, okay? And all the rest have to be sublimated under the will and reign of Jesus, okay? That's, that's a similarity I share with my same-sex attracted brother, and yet I find relief in marriage and comfort and companionship. I don't struggle with loneliness. I struggle with time to be alone, right? And yet, a faithfully celibate Christian, same-sex attracted man, I have a very dear friend, his greatest struggle is loneliness and deep companionship. That's not my struggle at all. There's similarities, but there are differences. And embrace the similarities, but don't minimize the differences, right? Four and five go together. One, one is to offer family inclusion. One of the ways in which evangelical Christians still are a little homophobic is we do believe, because we believe that homosexuality is a disordered sexual desire, we do believe on some level that gay men are going, or women, are going to be sort of perverts, and so we have ch- children protection instincts that we will push down, but that we do kind of feel. And here's the thing. Everybody's a pervert, and if you're a parent, you always have to protect your kid from everybody, and yet, Everybody deserves family inclusion. God puts people in families who don't have them. And so everybody, we should seek to draw them into the loving rule of Christ within the family and home. And people who are long-term single, whether they're gay or not, should always be invited whenever they want to to come into the circle of a loving family. And then the, the, the last thing is this, and listen to the last 10 minutes of next hour if you want to hear more on this, but um, Wesley Hill, who wrote, I think, probably one of the better books on Christian same-sex attraction, said this. He said, he said, what if one of the biggest problems in the church is not that we've lost our doctrine of marriage, he doesn't say it quite this way, but that we've actually lost our doctrine of friendship. In the 1980s, um, a gay gay Catholic guy named John Boswell wrote a book that basically argued that the church had same-sex weddings throughout most of the Middle Ages because it had a service called the Adelphi something. It's the, the brotherly love service in which men, two men would come together and there was this rite that they would go through in which they were bound to each other. And he said it had a homoerotic overtone and the church, so, and, and, and like this erupted sort of the pro-gay movement in terms of the Bible. Christians can be pro-gay and all the mainline denominations went over to it. It's totally false. Totally false. However, the church had a right that bound two men together as blood brothers forever like a marriage. The church had a service for that. That friendship was so covenantal, so unbreakable, so like a marriage, that two men would come together in such deep friendship union that it couldn't be broken morally, but they were bound together before God to be companions to each other throughout life, (laughs) non-erotically. Who has ever freaking heard of that? I mean, think about that. Yes, we're totally losing our doctrine of marriage. Yes, we totally need to get that back. Yes, I'd love to preach a whole series on that. But for, for, for God's sake, literally, we have totally lost our ethic of friendship. And you know who's probably lost out the most on that? Single people. And you know who stays single if they stay devoted to Christ and their sexual attractions don't change throughout their life? Same-sex attracted people and transgendered people. 
And if we don't recapture the doctrine and life of covenantal Christian friendship, it will be perhaps our greatest sin against them. That's by far all the time we have, so let's pray. Father, I pray that the things that I've said that you don't agree with would pass from these folks' minds and they wouldn't think about it again. And the things that you care about and the things that you believe in, um, that you would press in and help us to deal with and help us to think about and lead us to a fruitful discussion next Sunday. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.